For those of you who don't know uh, who I am, my name is Paul Lester. I'm one of the assisting pastors here at Calvary Chapel Modesto. And uh, Pastor Damien had a planned vacation this weekend, so he's asked me to step in for him. And it's always a privilege for me to do that. And I'm blessed to be here with you and continue our study and our series through the attributes of God, which I began a few months back. So let me just read this one verse. Uh, it'll be kind of our, our starting point, our foundation for our topic this morning, uh, looking at uh, an interesting and uh, very often misunderstood attribute of God. Exodus 34, verse 14, where Moses tells the children of Israel, and by extension, you and me this morning, he says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning, it is a pleasure. It is a blessing. Lord, it is, a, it is exciting to be in this place and of the opportunity to worship together with our brothers and sisters and to express, Lord, with our words and with the songs of our mouth the affection that we have for you, our amazement at who you are and all that you've done for us. And Lord, having spent time in worship, we pray that now our hearts and our minds would be prepared, centered and focused upon you. And Lord, a place of rich soil where you can plant your word deep and water it by your spirit that you might produce within us the fruit that you desire. And Lord, the testimony of your son in our lives that the world might see in us a reflection of your glory and be drawn to want to know the God that we serve. And so, Lord, this morning we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices and ask that you would have your way with us today. Teach us, edify us, strengthen us, challenge us, correct us. Whatever you intend through your word this morning, we pray that we would be glad recipients of it. And we know that you will do these things because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're a note taker, I would title this particular study, God is Jealous for our best. God is jealous for our best. And let me introduce it by an illustration, and that is from the queen of daytime talk shows, Miss Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Wouldn't normally quote her, but it, it serves our purpose this morning, and that is that Oprah tells the story of when she was a young woman of about 20, that she began to seriously question the nature of the God of the Bible when she heard her pastor tell her from the pulpit that God is a jealous God. And that didn't sit well with Oprah, and she could not reconcile her conception of God, the God that she created in her mind, with the God of the Bible. She couldn't understand how it is that God could be jealous of her. And from that point forward in her life, she began to build her own theology, in other words, a God of her own imagination, concerning the nature of what she felt God should be like concerning what she thought God should be and all that he might be as expressed in Jesus Christ. And that vision, that, that theology that she created and that she has expounded on her daytime talk show is far from a biblical view of God. And clearly, I would contend that Oprah misunderstood what her pastor meant when he said that God is a jealous God. But it's not just Oprah Countless people, including many Christians, aren't quite sure what the Bible means when God says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In fact, I would suggest that the jealousy of God may be the most misunderstood of all of his attributes. 
And while we could comprehend maybe that he has all power or that he has all wisdom or all knowledge, that he is perfect in his love, when it comes to the jealousy of God, we find ourselves a little bit challenged and a little bit uh, perhaps mm, incomplete in our understanding about what that means. And so we're going to want to spend some time this morning investigating what the Bible tells us about what it means when it says that God is a jealous God. Because we don't want to come to wrong conclusions, pantheistic conclusions, pagan conclusions like Oprah did. Rather, we want a solid biblical understanding so that we can not only embrace God's jealousy as it is expressed in the scripture, but also rejoice in the marvelous truth that God is jealous for your best, for my best, and for all of our best. We begin by looking at a definition of what it means when God says that he is a jealous God. In other words, it's good to start with a foundation. What in fact does that mean? How do we define the jealousy of God? Because admittedly, it's difficult at first pass to get our minds around the idea that God is jealous because on the one hand, the jealousy or jealousy is expressed in the scripture as something sinful or a sinful characteristic of people and yet a positive moral attribute of God. In other words, how do we reconcile it's sinful or is it a positive attribute? So by way of example, as we just read in Exodus 20, verse five, it says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Well, that's a positive moral attribute that's being expressed concerning the nature and the character of God. And yet the apostle Paul warns us in Galatians when he lists the, 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 uh, the works of the flesh, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, the things that are not good, the things that are sinful, the things that you and I don't want to be a part of our lives. And he includes, listen, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, and jealousies. So the question for the Bible student as we compare scripture with scripture is to ask, which is it? Is jealousy good or is it bad? Well, as my wife likes to tease me and my children, her answer would be yes. (laughs) Well, that doesn't help me. Yes, what does that mean? Well, yes, jealousy is both good and it's bad. So let me explain that. Sinful jealousy is the kind of jealousy that the apostle Paul warned us against there in Galatians 5. That is, it's a work of the flesh, and it's manifested when you or I become envious or jealous of of what someone else is or what someone else has. So by way of example, you might be able to get your mind around this. I could be, and this is just hypothetical, but I could be envious and jealous of Elon Musk. (laughs) I mean, he's got a little cash, a couple things that I might be envious of, not the least of which is that he owns a Lotus Emira. (laughs) Now, don't Google that on your phones right now. Wait till afterwards, but it's a gorgeous British sports car, a car that costs way more money than I possess and way more money than I would, would ever spend, even if I did have it. But nonetheless, it's a car that I would not mind taking my beautiful wife on a drive up Highway 120 to Sonora. Those twisty roads as you move up the mountain, oh, I would, I would enjoy that. Or to park that in my garage. But that kind of jealousy is sinful because at its root, it is covetous in nature. Covetous is covetous defined as that ungodly desire for something that does not belong to me. And I'm jealous because Elon has one. Well, friends, that's a work of the flesh. That's clearly wrong, that's clearly bad, that's clearly sinful. 
But the man, or excuse me, the jealousy that God manifests is always good. For God is never jealous of what anyone else has, nor of what anyone else is, because ultimately everything and everyone belongs to God. And therefore there's nothing of which he could be jealous of. So then there's nothing and no one that could ever uh, arouse within God's nature or within his heart some kind of unrighteous envy or jealousy, some sinful desire, some work of the flesh, which means that when God expresses jealousy, it can never be in a wrong or sinful way. It's always gonna be good and it's always gonna be for our best. Well, back to the queen of daytime talk shows. What Oprah misunderstood at 20 and I would suggest she probably misunderstands even today, is that God is not jealous of her, nor is he jealous of what she has. Rather, God is jealous for Oprah. Specifically, he is jealous for what is best for her life. My point is this, that as her creator, he alone knows what will produce the greatest, the best possible life for her now and for eternity. And his jealousy will be aroused by anyone or anything, including herself, that would seek to rob her of what's best for her life now in eternity. And so we might define God's jealousy simply as his righteous zeal to protect and to preserve what rightly belongs to him. And of course, as the creator, everyone and everything ultimately belongs to him. Another pastor put it this way. He defined God's jealousy as that praiseworthy zeal to preserve and protect something that is supremely precious to him. Well, that ought to cause us in our mind to stop and to think and to wonder, well, what is supremely precious to God's? What is it that would arouse or evoke his jealousy to protect and preserve something that is supremely precious to him? Well, as we look at the scripture, we find that the Bible declares there are a number of things that are extremely or supremely precious to God, things that would evoke his jealousy to step in and to preserve and protect them, and they include his nature, Exodus 34, 14, his name, Ezekiel 39, 25, his land, Joel 2.18, and you might just jot that down, look it up later, Joel 2.18, because it has a very significant impact on the eschatology that God has predicted about how he's going to intervene in the world and why he's going to judge the nations. It's all about his land, Joel 2.18. He's also jealous for his city, that is Jerusalem, Zechariah 1.14, and most importantly, he is zealous to protect and preserve his people Zechariah 8.12. Now, we're going to touch briefly on a number of those, though obviously I can't go into each of those exhaustively. We don't have time this morning. Rather, I want to focus our attention on God's jealousy for his people, which includes not just the chosen people of the Old Testament, that is the Jewish people nationally, but more importantly, all of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, both Jew and Gentile, including you and me this morning. Well, friends, let's start with the biblical foundation. I've given you a couple of scriptures, but we always want to make sure that we have a solid biblical foundation for anything that we believe to be true about God, because we don't want to be like Oprah, where we just invent things in our mind about what we think God is like. No, we want to know from his word how he describes himself. 
And what we find is that in the Old and New Testaments, God's jealousy is on display from Genesis to Revelation. For example, in Ezekiel 39, verse 25, God declares of himself. He says, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And listen, I will be jealous for my holy name. Now what God means by that, what it means to be jealous for his holy name is that God is going to act to preserve, to protect, and to promote his reputation as the God who keeps his word. For example, you have probably heard somebody say something like, a man or a woman is only as good as their word. In other words, whatever they communicate about what they're going to do, and whether they do it or not, communicates the value of their reputation. And God is concerned about protecting his reputation, which is his name, as expressed by his word and his promises. And here in Ezekiel 39, God is reminding his people, who at the time were held captive in Babylon for their sins, he reminds them that their hope is secure, that one day, just as he promised, he would restore them from Babylon back to the promised land, even as promised by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 25. In other words, God would act to fulfill the word that he spoke through Jeremiah to his people, to bring them back from Babylon captivity that his name, his reputation, might be preserved. Well, next we read that God's jealousy moves him to purge the wicked desires from the hearts of his people. And I read from Deuteronomy 32, verse 16 and 18, where Moses says, they, speaking of the people of Israel, provoked him, that is God, to jealousy. How did they do that? Moses says, with their foreign gods and with abominations, they provoked him to anger. How did they do that? They sacrificed to demons and not to God, to gods that they did not know, new gods, new arrivals, that Moses says, your fathers did not fear, and of the rock, speaking of God, who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Well, friends, all we have to do is take a, a survey of the Old Testament to find that the sad history of Israel from the Exodus through the time of the judges, later during the time of the kings, and down to this very present day. We find that Israel and Judah gave themselves to the vilest and most contemptible forms of worship in their worship of their false gods and goddesses, including throwing their newborn children into the fire to satisfy the lust of the idols that they worshiped. And here in Deuteronomy, Moses tells Israel that God's jealousy moves him to discipline his people for the purpose of purging those wicked desires from their hearts. And the question, of course, is, well, why would he do that? Why would God care about what God or goddess they worshiped? In other words, if they rejected him, isn't he secure enough in who he is and, and his, his, you know, his character to not care about who they worship? Well, yes, he is secure, but his jealousy is aroused not for his sake, but for their sake. God's jealousy will not allow him to sit by idly and watch the people that he loves destroy their lives to the worship of demons. Demons, by the way, whose only desire was in the Old Testament and is currently today to rob his people of the life and the blessings that he intended his people to experience. And so when God's people turn aside to worship anyone or anything other than himself, 
It's not because he's insecure that he acts. No, he acts for their benefit, knowing what's best for his people. And the point is that the expression of God's jealousy is always, let me say that again, it's always for the benefit and the blessing of his people. And it includes his promise to purge them, and I would say even us, of the evil desires that we have that are incited by the schemes of the enemy who would steal their affections, that is the children of Israel, and our affections by promising to satisfy the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of life. But in the end, the devil and demons only deliver death. And so God's jealousy moves him to purge the wicked desires of our heart. Well, next and perhaps most thought-provoking is the revelation that God's, or that in God's word, Jealousy is communicated as something that God doesn't just feel or something that God does is not that he doesn't just do, but rather that it is part of his irreducible character. That is, jealousy isn't something that God just feels or that God just, you know, that God just does. It's something that he actually is. In other words, part of his intrinsic nature. By way of example, we, we read in 1 John that God is love. In other words, God doesn't just love or feel love. He actually is love. He's the very definition of it. To know love is to know God. And in the same way, the Bible describes God's character as jealous. And just as love is inseparable from the nature and the character of God, so too is his jealousy. In fact, in the Old Testament, six times, God describes himself by the name jealous. And in scripture, God's name is always synonymous with his person, his character, his being. In fact, it's a fun study to go through the Old and the New Testament and look at the different names and the titles by which God describes himself. Each and every one gives us a nuance to help us come to a better and full and more complete understanding of the nature of God. Well, let me illustrate it this way. Most of us are probably familiar with Abraham's experience in Genesis 22 where God told him, take now your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mountain I'll show you there in Moriah. And on that mountain, offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice to me. And you'll remember in this story that Abraham, by this time, his faith is secure, and even though he knows that God has promised this through Isaac, that his descendants will be, he's willing to sacrifice him, knowing that God could raise even the dead if that's necessary. But there on Mount Moriah, as, God, or as Abraham prepares to sacrifice his son, a voice calls out from heaven and stops him and then redirects his attention to a ram that is caught in the thickets. And so God, or excuse me, Abraham takes the ram as a substitute for Isaac and he offers the ram as a sacrifice. And then listen to what Abraham says. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In other words, Abraham attributed to God the name Jehovah Jireh, that is, he is the provider. And it communicates the, the understanding that God provides all that we need in life and godliness. In other words, everything that we need physically, emotionally, spiritually, God provides. He's the source of all of that. But most especially, Abraham tells us that God provides the substitutionary sacrifice that you and I need, and it was pointing ultimately to Jesus who would be that sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. And so his name was called the provider, God the provider. Well, friends, in Scripture, 
what many believers do not understand or maybe haven't read is that God's name is also recorded as Jehovah Kana. That is, God is jealous. Again, in our opening text there in Ezekiel 13, or excuse me, Ezekiel 34, verse 14, God says, or Moses says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. And again, his name communicates to us part of his nature. And that jealous nature of God is that he is zealously committed to protecting an exclusive relationship with you and me. A relationship he is not willing to share with any other God or any other person or anything else that would divide our attention or affection and steal from us what is best for us as God intends. And so jealousy is a part of his character that moves him to restore, to protect, and to preserve a relationship with you and me. Well, let's look at the implications of God's jealousy. In other words, now that we know that God is a jealous God, we want to look at, okay, the implications of what that means. In other words, before we look at the blessings and the benefits of God's jealousy to me personally, we need to understand the implications and to heed the warnings lest we provoke his jealousy as the children of Israel did that would result in our discipline. So number one, God's jealousy demands, and this is important, that we love him with an undivided heart. As God's children by faith, that's you and me, children of God by faith in Jesus, and the glad recipients of his perfect love, and I would include all of the blessings and benefits that Jesus Christ has as the Son of God have now been bestowed upon us as God's children, you and I are now called to respond to that love by turning away from anything or anyone that would defile our mind, our body, or our soul. Let me illustrate this way. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, <laughs> In other words, Jesus is communicating that our expression of love to him is manifest by whether or not we obey him or disobey him. And Jesus' point is that in our relationship, obedience is important because it communicates that we love him. And to willfully disobey the Lord is to break fellowship. I'm not saying it, it, it breaks salvation. We are secure in our salvation. But it breaks our fellowship, not him to us, but us to him. And the intimacy of the relationship we have with Jesus is, is distanced when we are walking in willful disobedience. In a sense, when you and I choose to willfully sin, to willfully disobey, we are in one sense embracing another lover. And that's why all through the Old Testament, God calls the worship of a false god or a false goddess disobedience of his people, spiritual adultery. Friends, God's jealousy for our best moves him to protect our relationship with him. But if we ignore God's commandments and continue in willful sin and disobedience, we run the risk of provoking his jealousy, jealousy that will be manifest as discipline in our lives. So let me illustrate it this way. God is jealous for our spiritual purity. 
That was the Apostle Paul's point when he warned his friends at Corinth, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 10.22, he says, or do we provoke the Lord's jealousy? And then Paul reminds them and us this morning, he says by way of question, are you stronger than he? (laughs) And the idea there is like, you don't want to provoke God because he's a whole lot bigger and a whole lot stronger than we are. Paul's sober reminder to them and to us is that God isn't a pushover. He's not a genie where we just kind of rub the bell and he does whatever we want, right? Some kind of God that's somehow, you know, required to do whatever I want him to do. No, no. (laughs) No, God isn't a God who ignores our sinful behavior or winks at our disobedience. The God of Scripture is the sovereign, all-powerful creator God who holds our next breath in his hand and to whom you and I, especially as believers in Christ, owe our affection and our obedience to. And therefore, as Christians, one of the implications of the jealousy of God is that now that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we have to be careful. We have to be on guard that we do not involve ourselves in a willful, sinful activity that would provoke God's discipline in our life. In other words, we're reminded that he isn't just the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He's also the lion of Judah, the king of the universe. And friends, lions aren't pushovers. They have claws (laughs) and they have sharp teeth and to ignore that is to bring swift destruction to ourselves. I think that aspect of God's character is perhaps demonstrated no more or nowhere more clearly than in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may remember after the children are are, are in in Narnia, and after they've met Mr. Beaver, Susan learns that Aslan, the king of Narnia, is a lion. (laughs) And she says to Mr. Beaver, and I quote, she says, I thought he was a man. Her question, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as would I. (laughs) To which Mr. Beaver correctly responded, who said anything about safe? (laughs) Of course he ain't safe right? But he's good. He's the king. Well, friends, that thought, that exchange that C.S. Lewis penned in the fictional book of, of Narnia captures this attribute of God's jealousy perfectly. What he's communicating is that God is perfect in his goodness and his holiness. Nonetheless, it is not safe to provoke God's jealousy. For as Paul reminded his friends at Corinth and you and I this morning, God is stronger than we are, and if needed, he will use his power to purge our lives of anyone or anything that will interfere in our lives. By way of example, I point to the New Testament in the book of Acts. And there in the young church in Jerusalem, you remember that Barnabas came and, and, and sold a piece of property, brought all the proceeds of that property and laid it before the apostles' feet that that money might be distributed to the people who were in need in that early church. And then another couple, Ananias and Sapphira, saw all of the blessings and the benefits that came to Barnabas for his generosity and thought to themselves, man, we, we want to get in on that. We want to be known as those generous people. And so they sold a piece of land, but then they plotted secretly amongst themselves, let's just pretend we're giving all that we 
got from the sale of this land, but let's keep a little back for our retirement, that condo in Maui, right? <laughs> and so they come before St. Peter and they, they lay the money at his feet as if, hey, this is everything we got for the piece of property. And they're waiting for the accolade and the applause and the slap on the back. But instead, Peter says, Ananias, why have you listened to Satan? You're not lying to men, but to God. And then he commutes, or he, and then Peter calls for God's judgment upon his life, and he drops dead. And then later, right, Sapphira, his wife also. And the point is that God's jealousy moved him to purge hypocrisy from that little church that had just begun, that spark of what we now call Christianity in Jerusalem. And I fully anticipate seeing Ananias and Sapphira in heaven, <laughs> but far short of having all of the, of the benefits and the blessings and the crowns that they should have received because there was hypocrisy in their lives. But friends, it's not just the Bible that talks about this. I had a friend back in Arkansas, another Calvary Chapel pastor, serving on the other side of the state from myself. And whereas our relationship began as friends and, and co-workers in, in the work of Christ there in Arkansas, I began to discern in his life just kind of a drift. He began to just get kind of weird and paranoid, and all of a sudden, everyone else was suspect except him, and with him was going to die truth, and he was the only one that really knew how to, to live for God and do a church for God and be a pastor of God, and he just kind of got weirder and weirder and weirder, and then suddenly, I get a call from his wife, and she informs me that he has begun self-medicating using marijuana. Uh, well, yeah. You know, as a pastor, that's really not, really not what you need to do, and especially in a state where it's illegal to do that. But he wasn't satisfied buying marijuana from the local, you know, drug dealer. And no one long week where his wife was on vacation and the church was, was on a break, he built a false room. In other words, like, here's the back wall where the cross is. One week while everybody was gone, he just kind of moved that forward about five feet, so when you came in the next Sunday, you wouldn't notice it still looks like the same back wall. But behind the wall, in the church building, he had a computer-controlled hydroponic growing lab for exotic marijuana. So while you're worshiping, right, right behind the, the lights are coming on, the water, and it's like, it's like, what in the world? Well, the sheriff found out. They broke the wall down, and they took him off and arrested him put him in solitary confinement because he had served as a chaplain, so they didn't want him to be in the general population. So the next morning they come to get him for breakfast and he is no longer alive. I don't remember his age, he's 47, 48 years old, but he is dead in police custody. Well, now the state police have to get involved because, you know, potential lawsuit. So the state police come and they take his body away down to Little Rock, Arkansas to do a complete autopsy to find out what happened so that they can say to the family and anyone else that would investigate what happened. Well, two weeks later, his wife calls me. She's an RN. She says, Pastor Paul, I'm looking at the pathology report, the, the autopsy. There is no medical or physiological reason that my husband should be dead. There's no sign of a heart attack, no sign of stroke, no sign of disease, no sign of anything. He just stopped living. Oh, <laughs> boy, that reminds me of Acts chapter 5. <laughs> the point is that God's jealousy moves him to bring discipline in our lives. And when we resist and resist and resist and resist and resist, as Paul said to the man in sin in Corinth, in Corinth I've committed his body to the enemy for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's like, if he won't repent, man, God could take him out. And here's my point. 
If you or I are involved in willful disobedience, the implication of God's jealousy is he will bring discipline and we need to make sure that we don't push him or provoke him as the Apostle Paul warned. Number two, God's jealousy demands that we use his gifts for his glory. The Bible makes it very clear that every natural and spiritual gift that you and I possess is a gift from God. James tells us in James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, and what do you have that you did not receive? Answer, <laughs> nothing. Everything I am, everything I have, everything you are, everything I, you have, it's all a gift from God. And Paul's point and James's point is that the gifts that you have and I have received from God are not primarily to be used for our own personal benefit and entertainment. Rather, God's gifts are given to us that we might serve him and bless others. And therefore, in view of God's jealousy, we should be intentional about using the gifts that God has given us for his glory, his kingdom, and the benefit of others. Because the point is that if we misuse the gifts that God has given us for our own aggrandizement or profit or worse, to use those blessed gifts for the advancement of Satan's kingdom, then we run the risk of stirring up God's jealousy to bring quick and decisive discipline in our lives. I illustrate it this way. <clears throat> Back when we were on 10th and F, we had a, a young man that was a very gifted musician, and uh, he used to caution other young men and women who felt they were called into worship ministry by telling them, and I quote, he said, people don't worship plumbers. Now, that's not a dig against plumbers. We all need a good one, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the sink backs up, the whatever. It's like, man, it's great to have somebody that knows how to fix those things. But his point was that people don't hang, hang posters of plumbers in their bedrooms, nor do they scream themselves into hysteria after a plumber fixes a leaking toilet. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine people fainting in the hallways as plumbers fix their, their toilets? But people do worship actors and actresses and musicians and athletes and make absolute fools of themselves in the expression of their adorationless people. For those who are as old as I am, you can remember Beatlemania where women would scream themselves into hysteria and they just pass out just from looking at one of the Beatles, right? And we see the same thing today. And the point is that if God has gifted you or has gifted me, as a musician or an athlete or an actor, something that would, would gain attention to ourselves. We have to be very careful that we do not use our gifts in a way that would dishonor God or tarnish our witness for him. Now again, I'm not saying that every gifted musician is called to be a worship leader. That's not true. Nor am I saying that every Christian actor has to pick only Christian movies. There's a lot of movies that are made that are neutral. They're not bad. They're not good in the sense of, you know, a Christian witness that a Christian actor or actress could feel very confident doing. But what I am saying is we have to be careful that we don't dishonor God with the gifts that he has given us. By way of example, I think of Rene Russo. Some of you may remember that in 1999, she was a very well-known and uh, vocal, and I quote, born-again Christian attending a prominent church in Southern California, the name of which if I shared with you, you go, oh, I know that pastor. Well, she was offered a, a very um, lucrative role in the movie, The Thomas Crown Affair, but it required her to do a full nude scene. 
So she wrestled with this as a born-again Christian, a public born-again Christian with a witness to the world. And as she struggled with it, she concluded that she could do that nude scene. And I quote her reasoning. She says, I don't know where in the Bible it says, don't be nude in a motion picture. (laughs) Well, Renee, if you're listening, I can show you a lot of scriptures which exhort us to modesty (laughs) and not to bear anything other than our soul, lest we cause a brother or sister in Christ to be stumbled by what we're doing. Now, I think a better and more biblical example and more contemporary is Nicole Weider. Now, you may not recognize the name, but she was a popular swimsuit and Victoria's Secret model. In other words, lingerie, very, very, you know, enticing kind of model. And then became born again and recognized that if she was going to honor God, she could no longer do that. So she walked away from a very lucrative career as a lingerie model so that she might honor Christ. And then she launched a new program to encourage other women to see their value in Christ rather than in their body. Now that's using your gifts well, versus Renee Russo, which misused the gift that God gave her, given her. My point is that we have to remember that the same God who gave us those gifts can just as quickly remove them if we choose to use them inappropriately. So the exhortation is in view of God's jealousy, let's use the gifts that God has given us in a way that pleases him and blesses others. Well, there's some objections to God's jealousy. In other words, people go, wait a minute. Again, I'm just not, it just seems really inconsistent to me. And really, that's the only true objection against the jealousy of God is that some critics would say, hey, that's, that's inconsistent to say that God's jealousy is right and good, but man's jealousy is wrong and bad. Because after all, the Bible calls us to be love. It says God is love and we're called to love says God is holy, we're called to be holy. Those are moral attributes. How come then I can't be jealous if God's jealous? Well, the answer, of course, as we've already seen, is that jealousy isn't a problem. That's a fake narrative or a false narrative to say that God can't be perfectly jealous and, and, and we, we are sinfully jealous. Rather, the problem is how it is that you and I as human beings express jealousy that makes it right or wrong. And it all comes down to motivation, Jealousy that is good and right is always motivated by love for others, while jealousy that is bad and wrong is always motivated by envy of other people or what they have. So by way of example, I think of the Apostle Paul's jealousy for the Christians at Corinth. To have a pure and undefiled faith, well, that's a good and a right kind of jealousy because Paul was jealous for what rightly belongs to God, That is the lives and the devotion and the love of the Corinthian believers for Jesus. But contrast to the Apostle Paul, we have plain old Paul. (laughs) Pop, plain old Paul, never mind. Anyway, and my jealousy of Elon Musk's Lotus Emira, which is a bad and wrong kind of jealousy because it's an unrighteous expression of envy and resentment for what rightly belongs to Mr. Musk. So it's not inconsistent to say that God's jealousy is always good. No, the inconsistency is on our part in how we express jealousy. But God's jealousy is always and only an expression of his love for what rightly belongs to him. While our jealousy that you and I might express can be right or wrong depending on our motivation. 
Well, friends, I want to send you home with the blessings and the benefits of God's jealousy. In other words, I don't want just to send you home with kind of an intellectual, theological, okay, we got that, check the box, understand. No, no. We want to understand God's jealousy in a way that makes it practical in our lives. That's when it becomes personal. That's when it becomes relational. It moves from just an intellectual construct or concept to a personal experience with God himself, an experience that will lead us to love God more than we already do. Now, I wish I had lots of time to go over all the blessings and benefits. I just want to give you two that I hope will blow your mind. Number one, God's jealousy ensures that he will fight for you. My point is this. Recently, our fellowship viewed the film, The Jesus Revolution, which in part tells the story of how Calvary Chapel's movement began through the eyes of a young Greg Laurie, who was the author of the book that became the movie. Greg Laurie in the movie is a brand new convert to Christ. And in one really emotional scene, Greg is like crashing and burning in his young faith, and he breaks up with his new girlfriend, Kathy, because he's bought into his mother's narrative that eventually everyone leaves. And even though he loves her desperately, he decides in his mind it would be better just to to break up now and to reduce whatever pain I'm going to experience rather than prolong this thing and just have her leave me anyway. So Greg breaks up with Kathy. And in that scene, Kathy, who is sure that they're supposed to be together, she looks at him and says, won't you fight for me? And isn't that what all of us desperately want? Someone who loves us enough that they would slay any giant, traverse any distance, and fight through hell itself to protect and to preserve a relationship with us. And that's exactly what God's jealousy ensures, that he will fight to restore, preserve, and protect a relationship with you and me. The evidence of it, we see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden there in Genesis 3. And in the very same chapter where Adam and Eve by their sin broke the relationship that God intended them to have with him, we see God serving up notice to the devil himself that he would fight to restore that relationship. Genesis 3.15, listen to what God says to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity. Enmity, that's war. (laughs) That's a fight between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and then speaking of her seed, a future prediction of the Messiah, God tells Satan, he, that is Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, a picture of the crucifixion. It was God's jealousy, that indistinguishable, excuse me, inextinguishable blaze of his love for you and me, that left him not willing to leave Adam and Eve or any of their descendants in their lost condition, but it moved him to send his son to fight for us. How? As we just read in Genesis 3.15, to save us by delivering that knockout blow to Satan's head through the cross of Christ by which we might have the way restored to us to have a right and a pure and a loving relationship with God. In other words, he fought to restore the relationship, and now that we're in the relationship with him, he fights to protect it and preserve it. Number two, God's jealousy, and again, I wish I could go on all morning. I'm just gonna give you two, and I pray they're a blessing to you. His jealousy moves him to protect us. For example, God's jealousy moves him to protect you and his people from anyone 
who would try to seduce us from the pure faith that we have in Christ. That was the apostle Paul's heart when he communicated to his friends in Corinth. Listen to what he writes. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. And you go back in your reading to discover that in context there in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's desire motivated by this godly jealousy was to protect his friends at Corinth from the destructive nature of the false doctrines and the false teachers that were creeping into their church. False teachers and false doctrine that taught a different Jesus who is not divine. A different gospel that cannot save and a different spirit that cannot transform. And Paul knew that if the Corinthian believers were not quick to purge these doctrines from their church and their hearts, they would soon lose their passion for the real Jesus and lose the power of the spirit to transform their lives and to live for him. Ultimately, it would reduce their faith to nothing more than a religion without a relationship, a form of godliness, but without the power of God, an anemic religion that would be Christian in name only. And it was God's jealousy for our pure devotion to him and their pure devotion there in Corinth and for the truth that moves him to protect his people from the counterfeits offered by Satan. I illustrate this way. Any of us who are parents understand Paul's heart here. That is, if your child was seduced by a cult leader, say, for example, Charles Manson, who you read the history of what he did, he seduced numerous young men and women who then he convinced to commit some of the vilest murders ever recorded in human history. Well, friends, as parents, our jealousy for our child's well-being would move us to act on their behalf even if it meant to make our children angry with us by rescuing from that kind of a cult. We would act because it would be in our child's best interest, again, even if they didn't understand what we were doing. And I might add that you and I would think a parent was negligent and unloving who didn't act to save their child from a cult. Well, friends, how much more does God's jealousy move him to protect his children, you and me, right, from anyone and anything that would harm our spiritual vitality and rob us of the blessings that we're supposed to enjoy in Christ Jesus, And just as he did at Corinth, God will often work his jealousy through the agency of a human being. In other words, it's through an apostle Paul or someone like you or me who recognizes a false teacher or a false teaching and we get involved to rescue somebody out of that cult. I remember when I was uh, back in Arkansas, I was doing a hospital visitation. And so every time you walk into a hospital, you always go to the front desk and there's the candy stripers, the retired gals that are back there, you know, wearing their little candy stripe dresses and they're just volunteers. But they're the ones you go to to find out, uh, you know, what room is Mr. Smith in, right? And they tell you what room and send you on your way. So I was at this hospital and I had my my big Bible with me, uh, New King James, and I just had it on the counter as I was talking to these two women. And a complete stranger walks up to me and starts poking my Bible. Like, okay, dude. Uh, we're going to have to go outside. <laughs> I mean, what, what are you doing? Well, he saw that on, on, the, on the, you know, the edge of the Bible that it had the symbol of the New King James Bible. And he was a King James only guy. And he was from this cult called Shepherd's Chapel, Arnold Murray, which is also in Arkansas. So he starts going off about how it's a mistranslation because in 1 Corinthians 13, the old King James says, you know, uses the word charity, you know, uh, it, it, rather than love, New King James used the word love. And I'm like, are you, are you serious now? So I'm all, okay, do you understand what the Greek text says? 
And I had him at that point because he had no idea what the Greek text said. So I take him through the Greek and exegete and the whole thing about charity and love and how either is appropriate, but charity, uh, you know, in, in terms of 16th century English doesn't translate into what we understand in 21st century English. Go through the whole thing and then deal with some of his other cultic things and finally he just leaves frustrated. And these two women start clapping. <laughs> I guess he had been just, uh, just a thorn in their sides day in and day out because he'd come to the hospital and just, just give them all the horrible doctrine. And they were so glad to, thank you, yes, the Bible says that. You know what I mean? The point is that just as God used Paul, so too he will use people like you and me and arouse within us a godly jealousy to intervene to protect believers from the cultists who would try to seduce a brother or sister from their pure faith in Christ alone. Well, friends, in closing, I want to remind you that the foundational premise for all of the studies that I'm doing on the attributes of God, and we've looked at the number, we looked at his actuality, that he actually exists, that he's the ultimate reality. His aseity, that is, he has no needs at all because as the creator, there's nothing that he made that he needs. Rather, we need him. We've looked at his omniscience, all-knowing, his omnipotence, all-power. And now we look here at his jealousy. And with each attribute My contention is that to know him is to love him, and to know him better is to love him more. Well, friends, how can we not love a God who fought to restore a right relationship with him, who went to the very ends of the earth to call us to himself and provide the means of not only our salvation and eternal life, but to walk in the joy and the contentment and the blessing that we have in Christ today? How can we not love a God who continues to work in our lives to protect us from anyone or anything that would try to rob us of that relationship with him or to rob us of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus? And so God's jealousy isn't some ugly characteristic of a petty, insecure being as Oprah Winfrey wrongly believes. Rather, it is a magnificent attribute of God who loves you and me so much that he is jealous for our best and will do all that's necessary to make sure that we can experience it. Friends, the warning would be, again, don't provoke God's jealousy. And if you're walking in disobedience today, today is the day to repent of it. And I would encourage you, don't waste time at the end of the service when we're up front to pray. Come on up and let one of the brothers or sisters pray with you. Confess your sin and then move free in the power of the Spirit to walk away from it because we don't want to provoke him to have to act in our lives and bring the discipline that will drive that disobedience away from us. Let's choose instead to acknowledge that that sin and receive his mercy and grace. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we thank you for this amazing, magnificent attribute of your jealousy. And Lord, I I would pray that even now, after I have spent the last few minutes describing what that means, that if any of us are still confused, I pray that you would bring us to your word and make clear to us the blessing and the benefit of your jealousy for our best. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today, and if any of us are walking in disobedience, willful disobedience, that we take to heart the admonition of the Apostle Paul that we do not provoke you to jealousy, recognizing that you are, in fact, stronger than we are. And I pray that today would be the day that any man, any woman who has been trapped in a lifestyle of disobedience 
would take advantage of your power this morning to set them free from that, that they might then walk in purity, that they might walk in grace and mercy and might enjoy the fullness of the relationship that you've promised us. Lord, thank you for being jealous for our best, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at this time, 